but we've got it figured out. All right, well, this morning we have the great privilege, uh, not only of hearing a baptism, but finally getting to the actual text of the book of Revelation with these several weeks of uh, making our way into this book. We're actually going to begin in chapter 1 and verse 1 this morning and hopefully make it all the way to verse 3. And if you remember your outline, this is in the prologue. This is point number one in the overall uh, outline of Revelation, and this is the prologue. These are the beginning and the opening words of the Apostle John introducing to us all that is to follow in this glorious testimony of Christ. And it is a word that we need, it is a word they needed. It's coming to uh, people who were suffering, who were experiencing persecution for their faith in Christ. It's coming to a people who knew the wickedness of man given absolute power which resided in the Caesars. They knew the tyranny of Nero. They knew the tyranny of other emperors that would come after him that were on full display in their cruelty and their violence and their immorality and their perversions. And these were the ones, the rulers that they saw that had been given authority and power over men. And so they needed a word of encouragement as God's people have needed a word of encouragement all throughout the ages because we reside in a hostile land. We are a part of a kingdom yet to come. We serve the king who is the only true king and the one in whom authority only truly resides. And yet we live in enemy territory. We live in the kingdom of Christ. And so this is a word to the people to whom he's writing, and it is a word to his people throughout the ages of encouragement. It's a word of encouragement. It's a word of comfort. It is a reminder that God is on his throne. In light of suffering, in light of the rise of evil in the world, and though the world stands in rejection and opposition to God and to Christ and to righteousness and to the truth, it is a reminder that God is on the throne and he's working out his will in Christ. That his kingdom will come. That his will will be done. That his salvation is coming and will be established for his eternal glory and our eternal good. And so as we introduce it this morning, I want to just note two broad points that we'll uh, consider before we hear the waters of the testimony of baptism. The first is this, God's sovereign glory and revelation. We'll notice God's sovereign glory and revelation. And then God's sovereign grace to the redeemed. But let's begin by reading just the first three verses of the book of Revelation. Beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants, or slaves, the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his slave, John, who testified to the word of God. And to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. For the time is near. For the time is near. And with these opening words, John introduces to us the great themes that he will expound on throughout the rest of the book of Revelation. Let's begin with this then, God's sovereign glory in Revelation. God's sovereign glory in Revelation. And we would observe right at the beginning, God's sovereign glory as a trinity. And this is important to observe up front. 
God is a trinity. It is said that there are three monotheistic religions, that there is Judaism, that there is Islam, and there is Christianity. But that's actually not true. It's true in the broadest uh, undiscerning sense. But the reality is, is that only the message of the church, only the message of Christ says that God, there is one God, and yet this God exists in three persons. And this is Obvious to Christian doctrine, any Orthodox Christian makes the claim to God as a trinity. But very often we tend to think of God almost as three gods. We think of the God, the Son, the God of the Father, and then the God of the Spirit. And the God of the Father, God the Father does His work over here, and then God the Son does His work over here, and God the Spirit does His work over there. And oh yeah, there's one God, but we don't, in our thoughts about God, generally understand how He acts as one God while remaining, keeping his distinction of three persons. And so John introduces that idea to us right at the very beginning. And I want to just briefly observe it. It's something that we'll observe uh, many times throughout the entire book. But I, I want to put that in the forefront of our minds here in these opening words of Revelation. Notice what he says. He says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him. ...which God gave to him. And there is a picture here then of the divine relationships of the Godhead. God here, Theos, is a reference to God the Father... ...a common designation for the Father throughout Scripture. Jesus Christ is the incarnate Son of God. He is the Son in flesh. And here, He is the Son in flesh... ...and yet in His glorified humanity... ...at the right hand of the Father... ...having accomplished the work of the redemption... ...having resurrected from the dead... ...having ascended back to the Father where He is... ...even at this very moment. And it is from that place of the right hand of the Father... ...that we are told that God, the Father... ...gave Him a revelation. We'll come back to that in a moment. But God gave Him a revelation to show His slave... And he gave this revelation to the Son, who in turn communicated it to an angel, who in turn communicated it to John. And so let me just make a side note here, if that caught your attention, that he gave it to the Son, and he says, but he communicated it to, through, he communicated it by his angel at the end of verse 1 to his bondservant John. He communicated it through his angel. By saying his angel, this isn't a special angel assigned to Christ. By his angel is simply saying an angel sent by the risen Christ to fulfill his will. And his will in this case of communicating the message of these visions to his servant John. It is an angel under his authority fulfilling his will. And I would just remind us that this is not unusual if that struck you as odd. Scripture tells us that it was through angels that God mediated the giving of his law on Mount Sinai to Moses. We won't read all these passages for time's sake, Acts 7.53, Galatians 3, and others. It's angels that an angel that was sent to Daniel to reveal the future. If you remember, Daniel was praying, and God sent an angel to him, and the angel revealed to him all the things that were to take place in the future. It was an angel that announced the message of the birth of John the Baptist, the message of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So we see commonly, many other examples could be given, that God uses angels who are his servants, who are his messengers, to very often communicate his will at significant points in the unfolding of his divine revelation. And we'll see that angels take a key and a significant part throughout the book of Revelation, not merely in communicating his will and explaining the visions that are shown to John, but also in executing his very judgment on the earth. 
They are, in fact, his servants. However, what I want to focus here and note that they are the end of what is the source of revelation, which is God himself and God himself revealing himself in a very specific order. And that's just what I want us to notice. And here the source of this revelation is God the Father. The mediator of this revelation is God the Son. And later we will see that it is Christ the Spirit who is the actual power and agent of this revelation. Now he doesn't mention the Spirit here in verse 1. He'll mention him, well, in verse uh, 4, but also down in verse 10. John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And then he goes on to hearing and seeing this vision of Christ. And so the Spirit is the one who is communicating and empowering John to receive this revelation. It is the Spirit even who is the one speaking to the churches, though it is Christ speaking to the churches. He says at the end of each message in chapter 2 through 3... Just for example, in verse 7, this is repeated to each one. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so just notice here then that it is the Father who is the source. It is Christ who is the mediator. It is the Spirit who is the agent. And God always acts in unity as a trinity. He always acts in one God as a trinity. And that's helpful to notice up front. It is the testimony of the Spirit, or the prophecy, or the testimony of Jesus is the Spirit of prophecy, he'll say later in chapter 19 of Revelation. And so God is always acting in perfect unity and perfect harmony within himself. This is true in Revelation, this is true in salvation, this is true in sanctification, and this is true in judgment. In fact, John had told us earlier in his gospel that the Father had given all judgment to the Son and that is what we see unfolded throughout the entire book of Revelation. So we should not think of God as separated here. We should understand that God always reveals himself in acting in a particular relation within himself. The Father plans, the Son mediates that will of God, and the Spirit is the agent who brings it about. The power of God who brings about the will of God. And so we see that here at the beginning of the book of Revelation. That this is the risen Christ who as the risen and exalted Christ, the risen and exalted Messiah, is the one who is receiving from his Father what is now being revealed to us on the pages of Scripture. But notice what he says in verse 2 as well. That even though Christ is the one mediating the revelation given to him by the Father, he is also the very center of that revelation. It is uh, John, speaking of John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. The testimony of Jesus Christ being the testimony that Jesus Christ gave of himself, the testimony that he received from the Father that was given to John. Here he is bearing witness, he says, to all that he saw, to all that was revealed to him. It is Christ then who is not only the mediator of this revelation from the Father, but is also the very center of this revelation. He's the very heart of the revelation of God. And this is not surprising, for Scripture tells us that Christ and God's work in Christ is at the very heart of why God created anything at all. It says of Christ, Scripture does, that all things have been created through Him and for Him. 
All things have been created through him and for him. It says of Christ that the Father is put all things into subjection under his feet, Ephesians 1. And he will. Every enemy, every last nation, every last image bearer of God will be brought into subjection in Christ either in judgment and knowing the power of his justice or in the grace of his salvation. And it is to Christ, the incarnate Christ, who will return in glory to establish his kingdom that Paul tells us in Philippians, these familiar words, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why? Because the Father planned it, the Son executed it, and the Spirit brought it about, applying all of that work, and it's all to the glory of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I just want us to notice as an observation up front that God is acting here as he always acts as a trinity. The one true and living God, which alone is the testimony of scripture. Is the testimony of scripture. So this is a summation then of all of God's purposes in creation and redemption. This tells us the end of the story and it's all centered and grounded in the person and the work of Christ. Notice next here in this God's glory and revelation, his sovereign glory, is note his glory in his absolute sovereignty. His glory in his absolute sovereignty. Again, look at verse 1. The revelation. Actually, it just says revelation. It can be taken as a revelation or the revelation, but the revelation is more specific to this particular book and this particular prophecy. It is the revelation, he says, of the things, look at the middle of verse 1, the things which must soon take place. The things which must soon take place. A core purpose of Revelation then is to show this. The things that God has planned and the things that God has determined he will bring about. Another way to say this is to say it is to show at the very core and the center of Revelation God's absolute sovereignty over everything that he made. It's a statement of sovereignty. Sovereignty. Prophecy itself is a statement of sovereignty. God is the one who declares what he will do. He is the one who writes it down for everybody to read and examine. And then he is the one who accomplishes what he said he will do. And he is the only one that can accomplish it. Prophecy is a statement of sovereignty. Let me give you just one passage. You have to turn there. Let me just remind you on this point. So the nation of Israel was to go into exile... Isaiah chapter 40 is addressing those people who are in exile. Jerusalem was destroyed. They were displaced out of their land. They were experiencing the divine judgment of their covenant God for their disobedience. Everything looked hopeless. Everything looked like it was done. All of the promises seemed to have been forgotten by God. No doubt there was trouble in the heart of his people as what will the future hold. It seems now that the nations have all of the power and the authority. How can our circumstances ever be changed? How can the promises of God ever be fulfilled? And through the prophet Isaiah, God reminds his people of his sovereignty, of his sovereignty and the sovereignty of his promises. Just listen to this. This is an extended argument. I'm going to read just a couple verses. Isaiah 46 verse 8, remember this and be assured, be assured, be firm, be certain. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember, verse 9, the former things long past, 
For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying this, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all of my good pleasure. And so certain of he is this word that the whole language there of Isaiah 40 and on, particularly Isaiah 45 and on, is a, is a law court situation. And he basically puts himself on the stand and says, here's my word. Look at my works. Look at my promises. Look at the way that I act. And let all of these false gods be brought to the stand as well. And see if they can fulfill their word. See if they can declare to you what I'm going to do. See if they can tell you what the future holds. And, of course, those idols will be shown to be empty. But God is saying, my word will not be empty. I will watch over my word. I will perform it as I always have, and it will come about. Do not fret because of the way things are right now. Because I am ruling over the nations. And that's the same heart. And the idea here is he's giving a revelation. It's a word of the prophecy. He's saying this is what's going to happen. And God alone is the one who can say what's going to happen. God is the only one who can declare the end from the beginning. God is the only one who has the power and the authority and the glory to bring all of the nations to justice. And so we note that this is a word of sovereignty. Absolute, unchallenged sovereignty. And the opening word, from what we get, the word apocalypse, has the basic idea of then to uncover and to reveal, to unveil. What is he uncovering and unveiling here? His purposes for the world. His purposes for the world. What he's going to do. How he's going to do it. It's a revelation again of his absolute control. That he is on the throne. It's not what he hopes will happen. It's not what he's going to try to do with the best of his effort. It's not what he's going to train really hard and try to execute if he can make himself strong enough. It is what he absolutely will do. It's what he's determined to bring about as the ruler of all things. And so it's the message then that God will judge his enemies and establish his kingdom. He will abolish and condemn all that rises up to him in opposition, even if the whole world culminated, in all, when all the world culminates in its rebellion against God, when all of the fallen angels under the rule of Satan gather up all of the strength they can muster and stand in opposition to God. At the end of it, all of them mounted together and all of the power of all of the nations and all of the fallen angels together coming in one great force are to God nothing and meaningless and less than nothing. And that is the God that John is proclaiming to us right at the beginning. God stands unchallenged in his sovereignty. Listen to these words. Again from Isaiah, speaking to a people who were at this point in captivity. And he says this, All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. Language does not allow a stronger way to say that they're nothing. And then he says in verse 23, it is he who reduces rulers to nothing and who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. And that was a word they needed to hear. It was a word that we needed to hear. That God is the one on the throne. He's going to determine. Nero may put you on crucifixes and burn you along the streets. They may hunt you down in your houses and put you to death. But they are not the ones in control. And that is the message that we see, that God is the one in control. If he allows it, he has a purpose for it. But that is not the end of the story. 
It is not the end of his purposes. He will establish his kingdom on earth and his unchallenged sovereignty will be made known. He says in Isaiah, Revelation eleven fifteen, the seventh angel sound, sounding of the seventh trumpets, he says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. We read it out of the book of Isaiah this morning. He will judge his enemies. It's summed up in these opening words as well, if we drop down a little bit to verse 8, is he says this, I am the Alpha and I am the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The unchallenged one, the supreme one, the glorious one, the one who will fulfill his will. So all power resides with God. He is the absolute ruler over Satan. Satan is God's devil, as the Puritans used to say. The nations are God's nations. He rules them according to his purposes. And so ultimately, then, it is to say that you are not in control of your life. Governments are not in control of the life with all of the arrogance, with all of the self-importance, with all of the supposed power that men like to think they have as they see large armies march before them all in step and think, look at my might, look at my power, with the development of all of their weapons and all of their deceptive and evil purposes and like to think, look at my strength, who can stand against me? God laughs. Who are men that they could stand against God? Who is the devil which has to ask permission of God to act? And that is the picture. Here, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the determination of the things which must soon take place. This is the absolute declaration of the things that God will bring about for his own purposes and for his own glory. And that's established right at the beginning by the simple word revelation. It's revelation. It's revealing what God will do. And these words are often noted as reflecting the words of Daniel. Again, I'm just going to mention this. We're going to spend later as we go through Revelation some extended time in Daniel. But here I note, and some of you who are familiar with the book of Daniel, Daniel is in the kingdom of Babylon. He's taken in one of the first waves of Nebuchadnezzar coming against the land of Judah, the city of Jerusalem particularly. Daniel, one of the one of the wealthy, one of the privileged families is taken away. And there we have, as Daniel is in Judah, a servant of God who is used by God to interpret the dreams of King Nebuchadnezzar, the powerful King Nebuchadnezzar. Who can stand before Nebuchadnezzar? And Daniel is there to remind them that what Nebuchadnezzar power he has is because God has given it to him and God can just as easily take it away as we saw even in his life. But here are the words that are reflected. It says in Daniel chapter 2, if you'll remember that King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, nobody else in his courts who supposedly had insight into these things could interpret the dream. And then Daniel is found. Daniel is raised up by God. And he interprets the dream. And here's how he introduces it. He says, look, it's not me who has this great ability. It's not me who has this great power. But as a servant of God, he says this in verse 28. He says, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. 
And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while you were on your bed. Nebuchadnezzar, the interpretation of this dream belongs to God alone. The God who put you on your throne, the God who can take you on your throne, off your throne, and the God who will put somebody else there in your place. This is the God who rules over all things. And it is what Nebuchadnezzar himself came to realize later in chapter 4 after being confronted with this God who reveals mysteries. He says in verse 34 of chapter 4, For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. This is Nebuchadnezzar speaking. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? Daniel prayed a similar prayer after God had revealed to him the interpretation of the dream, and he said in chapter 2, verse 21, It is he, God, who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes them. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. So what is the message that he gives at the beginning? It is to say that God is absolutely sovereign. He's absolutely in control. And this is, he's telling you what he's going to do. He's telling you what his purposes are. If you are living in this world without the hope that the wisdom, perseverity, or living in, in hope that somehow the wisdom of man, the fortitude of man is going to rise up within them individually and as a nation, that somehow the strength of man is going to be the answer to solve all of our problems, to think that somehow our future resides in our ability to bring it about, to work hard enough, to be willing to make the sacrifice... The strength of man is enough. That's very American, isn't it? We're going to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. God laughs at that kind of thinking. And he says, no, no, you don't, you don't control those things. There's a God who controls these things. And here now he's revealing to you what he will do. If you're living in the world and your hope is not in Christ, then you're hoping in vanity, air, breath, nothingness, emptiness. It will not stand but if you know God, then the reality of his sovereignty is your great comfort. Why, do we not be, if, why are we not dismayed, if we know God, with the ever-changing winds of political fortunes and the rise and fall of nations? Because we know there's a God who is on his throne. And so just note thirdly under this, his sovereignty and revelation, is that it's for the strengthening of our people, the strength, or the strengthening of his people. He says this, why did he reveal these things? Why did he reveal his purposes? Why has he said what he is going to do? And he says this. It says that he, in the beginning of verse 1, which God gave to him, the son, to show his slaves the things which must soon take place. To bear testimony to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Why did he give this revelation and to whom did he give it? He gave it to his people to strengthen us. To encourage us, to comfort us, to give us hope when it seems like all things are hopeless and all hope is gone. To tell us what his dealings with the world will be, what our future holds. To tell us what will come of Satan and demons in the world that lies under his control. To tell us so that we would be strengthened to persevere, to exalt his glory, to point us to our share in that glory so that we could persevere 
to the end. And notice what he says. What does he call us there? He calls us, some of you have bondservant. Some of you may just have servant. It's a word that many of us are familiar with, doulos. The idea is slave. The idea is a slave. We don't like that word very much, particularly in America, but around the world many times. A slave. Yes, a slave. A slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been bought with a price, and therefore our life is not our own. It doesn't belong to us. Your plans don't belong to you. Your will doesn't belong to you. Your future doesn't belong to you. Your present doesn't belong to you. If you know Christ, it has been purchased. You are his own possession, a people for his own possession to do with as he wills and as he desires. He is a good Lord. He is a holy God. He is a gracious Lord and master, but he is a master nonetheless. It is his authority that we yield to and that we submit to. This is a designation for the church. Some see this as a reference possibly to Christian prophets, but he's speaking here not specifically to Christian prophets, but to the church. It is the identification of all of those who belong to him, which is made clear uh, in a variety of ways, but even the fact that it is a message to the churches, to the people of God, who would all fit under this label, his slaves. But it shows the character of those who belong to him. They are his, we are his, we follow our Lord. Speaking of this idea of slavery, one said this, they are absolute, of a, slaves are, the absolute possession of their owners with neither time nor will of their own. Dulos and abed, abed, which is the Hebrew term, bring out how absolutely we must surrender our life to God. And that's the idea here. Is that this is a message to those who belong to Christ, whose will has been yielded to him, submitted to him, has bowed to him, that is under him, that is under his authority, that is following him as Lord, who gets hope from what he will do and says, in the meantime, I am yours. I am yours. And it's gonna, it is the word that we need to be strengthened, again, in the face of persecution and suffering. And he said, I'm going to do these things quickly. Or things which must soon take place. Now this is taken as a variety of ways. We've already covered some of this. Some mean, well what does that mean? Some say that it means that once these events begin, they're going to happen quickly. Some understand it to mean that the original hearers are to experience all of these events in their lifetime. It's going to happen quickly. That is, even as you read this letter, know that you who are originally reading this letter are going to experience these soon. Some take it and say, no, it is, there is a, an initial kind of suffering and reality to these words, but ultimately it's something that's just inaugurated at the writing of this letter, and it's going to be reoccurring events throughout the history of the world, which will eventually have an end. Or it may be taken, which is how we will take it, to say they will happen soon is to say that they will, the end will come soon according to God's timetable. They are imminent, in other words. These are events that will happen soon, not necessarily soon by our perception because it's been over 1,900 years. I think I did the math, 1,988 years roughly since these were given, or since Christ came. But here, 
it is a reminder that these things will happen soon in God's timetable. He will not wait one moment longer than he needs to. He will not allow evil to have its rise one second longer than it is necessary to fulfill his purpose. And that's the encouragement of it. In fact, he uses this same exact phrase at the very end of the book. In Revelation 22.6, he says this, And he said to me, These words are faithful and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his slaves the things which must soon take place. Same phrase. It's at the beginning of the book. It's at the end of the book. And these things which must soon take place is everything that's in the middle. That's the idea. Sometimes it's a literary device, an inclusio. You put two bookends, and it's meant to encompass everything in between. And here he is encompassing and saying that these are things that will take place in God's timetable soon, even though to you it may seem like a long time. It may seem like a long time, but it's not. It means then that God will culminate his judgment. Christ will reign on the earth. Satan will be destroyed. The wicked will be judged. The blessings of salvation will come. And they'll come soon. Hold on. Hold on. And again, this is a reflection, it's noted, of that same encouragement that has always been given to God's people. And in Daniel as well, Daniel chapter 2, again, let me remind you. This was an encouragement to his people who are in captivity. And at the time of Daniel being uh, in chapter 2, it's a captivity that's only going to get worse. When he took Daniel, they just took some of the elite of the land. Eventually, it would end in the third wave of Nebuchadnezzar's persecution that Jerusalem would be destroyed, utterly decimated in the most horrific, horrific way, matched only by the destruction that would later come to the Jews, we've noted before, in A.D. 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman emperor. He says there is a God in heaven, however, who reveals mysteries, and these things will take place in the latter days. They are coming. And then this, the vision that he gives Daniel is a vision that includes the kingdoms that will come right after Nebuchadnezzar, so the media Persian Empire, a kingdom that will come after that, the kingdom of Greece, a kingdom that will come after that, the kingdom of Rome. And then he ends and says there's another kingdom yet to come, and it is a kingdom that God will establish by his own might, and it is a kingdom that will endure Forever and ever. And it is that kingdom that is revealed to us here in the book of Revelation. Listen to Daniel's words. In Daniel chapter 2, he says this. Or excuse me, Daniel chapter 3. Or Daniel chapter 2. He says this. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven, verse 44, will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, a kingdom that will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. Inasmuch as that you saw a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay. This is from the vision of the statue that he saw. The silver and the gold. The great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. That's the kingdom that's being revealed here to us in more detail. It's not merely a heavenly kingdom, a spiritual reign that was initiated. It is a reign that like the kings, the kingdoms, the evil kingdoms that came before it, had a reign on earth. And he's saying, no, God will accomplish his purposes on earth. Christ will reign. His kingdom will be established. And this is the kingdom that Christ is coming with Christ. And so we're not unlike, in many ways, the people of Israel 
who need that same encouragement. They were in exile from their land that was given to him, but we are in exile in a sense. We are strangers and sojourners on the earth awaiting for the fullness of our salvation. We need to know that it's coming and it will come soon. Let's note next briefly. God's sovereign grace then to the redeemed. The first and the God's sovereign glory of revelation. It is to say that God is acting as a trinity. God always acts as Father, Son, and Spirit. The center of His work and revelation, however, is on the Son and His coming glory and His kingdom. It is to say that this is a revelation of God's purposes. He will bring it about. He's absolutely sovereign. He is unchallenged in His power and in His sovereignty. And it is a revelation of His glory to strengthen His people to say, persevere, press on. Don't give up. Hold on. There is an end, and the end is the glory of God and your good. And so that's secondly then, in verse 3, God's sovereign grace to the redeemed. God's sovereign grace to the redeemed. It's His sovereign grace in His blessing. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy then and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. This is God's sovereign grace and blessing. And really, this is an amazing statement. Blessed. Blessed. There's a blessing that is held out to everyone who reads this book. Why is that amazing? The bulk of Revelation is what? It's an account of God's sovereign justice against man's sin. It's, a, it's an account of how God will uphold his holy nature, his holy word against those who reject him. And it is an execution of all rebels in his kingdom. And it is an account of the rightness of this judgment. Let me just give you one. Verse six, chapter 16, verse 5, Righteous are you, Righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judged these things, for they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets. You have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. They deserve it. It's a righteous judgment. And here in the midst then of a word of judgment comes a promise of blessing. A promise of blessing. Understand this, and if you know Christ, you understand this. There is not a sin listed in all of Scripture and all of Revelation that we are not capable of or in some measure guilty of. Not one. We do not come into this world, we who know Christ, as righteous people. We come into this world under the same condemnation that the world will experience at the end of this age. We should be among those who shake our fist at God. And indeed, at one point in our life, we were. We ignored his revelation. We had no desire to yield to him, which Paul says is the same as hostility toward God. For hostility towards God does not submit itself, does not submit the will to God. And so here it is in the midst of what judgments are coming on the world and what we deserve as well, that God offers blessing. And this is also what sets this part off from typical apocalyptic literature. This is unique. He gives a blessing A blessing. What does it mean to have a blessing? It has the basic ideas of happiness, well-being, and joy. Happiness, well-being, and joy. However, in Scripture, this idea of blessedness is not attached to mere emotion or circumstances, but it is the happiness and well-being and joy that comes from a reconciled relationship with God. A sure and certain hope of knowing God, of having sins forgiven, and being a part of everything that He has promised. It's a blessing that runs throughout as a theme throughout Revelation. Just listen to some of the ways. 
Don't turn to these, just I'm going to read them. In verse chapter 14, he says in verse 13, I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit. This is one of the few places the Spirit actually speaks. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow with them. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. Blessed are those who persevered to the end. Blessed are those who did not fall into the seduction of the kingdom of this world. Chapter 16, verse 15. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. Chapter 19, verse 9, Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who, invite, or who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Chapter 20, verse 6, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Chapter 22, verse 7 and 14, Behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter into the gates in the city. Those are the blessed ones. The blessed ones who are reconciled to God. The blessed ones who die in the Lord faithful to the end. The blessed ones who will be a part of the marriage supper of the land and his bringing his kingdom, which to them is a coming of salvation, not of judgment, which has been and will be unleashed on the world. Blessed are those who, through faith in Christ, have washed their robes so that they may have a right to the tree of life and may enter into the gates of the city. Blessed are those who have eternal life. Blessed are those who read and those who hear the words of the prophecy and keep or heed the things which are written in it. Those are the blessed then. How do we receive this blessing? We just read it. And I want to notice here out of this though, God's sovereign grace in scripture. It's his sovereign grace in offering a blessing to all who take refuge in him. And it's a sovereign grace of giving us scripture. He's already mentioned it, but I, I'll emphasize it here. Notice what he says. Who is the one who's blessed? The one who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep the things which are written in it. The blessing is attached to one's response to the prophecy. A prophecy written down, a prophecy read to God's people. God has given us a book. He's given us a book. But it's not a book like any other book. It's a book that took over 1,400 years to write. It's a book that claims as authors, kings, prophets, shepherds, the common man, the exalted man, political leaders, fishermen, poets, those who in the New Testament walked with the incarnate Christ, scholars, leaders, and again the common man, all instruments of the one true God and the one true author, the Holy Spirit, from whom all Scripture comes. All Scripture is God-breathed. God has written it down. We are so used to this. God has written down for us in words of black and right. And the words that we hold in Scripture are the most true and certain thing in all of this universe. Do you realize America could fall tomorrow? Your life could come into shambles tomorrow? Everything that you take security in could fall apart and you could be left in confusion? And you would have only one thing that's absolutely certain. And that is when you sit alone with the Bible, you open it up and you read the words of God. That is certain. Relationships can change. 
People can die, disease can come, nations can fall, wars will rise, tornadoes will wipe out entire towns, and one thing stands, the Word of God. The Word of God. All flesh is like grass. Its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of God stands forever. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear. God says, I'm writing it down for you. I'm not merely telling you. I'm putting it in words for you to think about, for you to know, for you to study, for you to remember, for you to keep in your mind and absorb into your heart so that you could know. Uh, some of you saw that video of Richard Wormbrand who was in prison. They took him. They, they took him right off the street. They, they put something over his head and they put him in the back of the car and they were driving him somewhere where they knew, where he knew he was going to suffer. And you know what he did? He asked them what day of the week it was. You know why he asked them that? Because he had memorized scripture ahead of time for every day of the month or the week. And so that he could, or the month, or the year actually, excuse me, every day of the year on all of the calendar days of the year so that he could start reciting that, reciting that reciting that in his mind. Because when they put him before a communist leader in a cold, dark prison, when they were beating him, when they took him outside and the others who were taken for the testimony of the word of God, he had strength. He knew who his God was. And he found encouragement. Why? Because the word of God was written down. Here he says, look, the word of this prophecy is for those who will read it and hear it. The reading now is a picture here of the early uh, services of the church. The singular is the one who reads, the plural is those who hear. And they didn't all have a copy. They didn't get to pick true tone, true leather, hardcover, and two-day shipping, one-day shipping, whatever. They didn't have that. What they did have is a place where they could gather. And then there would be a copy of Scripture. And somebody would stand up before them and they'd read it. And then they would all hear it. And then they would take what they heard and they would try to hold on to it and talk about it and pray about it. And then they would go off to live for Christ in the world and then they'd come back again and they'd hear it read. And he says, blessed are those who come to that, to that place to hear it. But guess what? He says, the blessing does not reside merely in the reading or in the hearing. He says this, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and, and here's the key, Heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. In the Hebrew mind, to hear and to obey were the same. If you don't obey, then you never heard to the Jewish mind. You never actually heard. But to hear is to obey. And we see this throughout Scripture and throughout the Gospels. In Luke 11, a woman cried out, Blessed is the breast that nursed you, and Jesus says, no, you remember? Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it and who obey it. Jesus marked two kinds of hearing identified in those who respond to him. In Matthew chapter 7, he said, the one who is wise are those who hear and keep and obey the things which they've heard. The foolish one are those who hear, but they don't obey. They don't respond in faith and obedience. So the blessing here is not automatic. It is a result of the obedience of faith. Result of the obedience of faith. Now, what does he mean, though, by keeping the things which are written in it? That could maybe become confusing at first, because isn't this a prophecy about future things that God was going to do? How do we keep the things that are written in it? Well, first of all, you have to understand that prophecy is ultimately ethical. 
Prophecy is ultimately a word of God to call them to holiness and to obedience and to trust and to faith and to live consistent with his covenant, consistent with his nature, be holy for I am holy, consistent with his will. Prophecy is not merely for information, it is for change, it is for encouragement, it is for strength, it is to his people. And that is the point of revelation. It's a call to faithful obedience. It's not merely information. It is a call to righteous living. Let me give you just one reminder of that. And this really speaks to those who just have a fascination with eschatology because it's like talking about UFOs or something else and aliens that help build the pyramids or whatever, which were supposed to be square, by the way. Only some of you get that. But the point is this, is that it's not merely for our fascination and for our curiosity. It is for our obedience of life. 2 Peter 3. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Therefore, beloved, in verse 14, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless. And blameless. It is an ethical call to God's people and all to who, who are willing to hear to say this listen, do not be seduced by the world. Don't be seduced by it because its character is revealed here. It is not all the glamour and the riches and the fulfillment of your pleasure, it is a beast. It has its end to destroy your soul and it itself will be destroyed by God. Don't listen. Don't listen to your own heart and your own lust. Be aware of false teaching and hold fast to the revelation of Christ held in Scripture. That's how we take heed to the things that are written in it. And so what are you clinging to? What are you clinging to? And here is the final word of hope, which I'll just mention briefly, because we'll cover these things down the road. For the time is near, again, for the time is near. The time is near. As I mentioned, it's over 1,900 years since these words were written, but in God's timetable, it's near. And here we get help from Peter again, in 2 Peter 3, who says this. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, I believe. Yeah, he says, Don't let, do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. God's timetable, God's perspective on time is different. And so he can say it is near because in his mind it is near. It is near. Our short, pithy little lives that are here for what? Maybe 90 years due to strength? That's nothing in the timetable of God. It is near. And God, people have always found their word of encouragement from that. Paul says, we're groaning, all of creation is groaning, we're familiar with that. But we have a hope, and we have a hope that we will be revealed to the world as the sons of God. We will receive the kingdom. And so this is a word of hope. It's a word of hope that though Satan deceives the whole world, that will not continue forever. And so as we come and hear this word of baptism... And continue to look at this revelation. Let me just give this final word. That if you're outside of Christ. If you are outside of Christ. If you have not repented. 
you might, if you have not turned your life to Christ, if it's just a Christian religious message that you can go out and then live your life like you want, and you say the word that I've heard today, interesting, maybe, boring, maybe, nice for them, maybe, but I live according to my own construction of the world, the dictates of my own will. This Christ is not one to be feared. He is not one to be loved. This God they preach is not one to be served and not one to be adored, not one to be yielded to. Then every curse in Revelation and Scripture is for you. And that's the message of Revelation. It is a threat and a warning. It's a summoning to turn to Christ. To turn from your vain pursuits. To turn from the empty things that you trust in. To turn from your own self-will that says that ultimately you are the determiner of your future. You are the controller of your life. You are the ultimate end of everything that you do. And the message of Revelation then is to turn. It's a warning. Hell is real. Heaven is real. And you'll be in one of them. For those who are in Christ... It is a strengthening of our faith. It is a message of hope. It's a encouragement to persevere. It's an ethical call to live righteously. It is a call to faith to say, look to the end. Don't get lost in this present. Because the end, and that's what we were saved for. That's what we were reconciled for. That's what Christ has called us to himself for. And so hold on. Be encouraged. Don't give up. Persevere in the end. He will strengthen you to do so. And that's what we hear the testimony now of one who made that response by the grace of Christ to trust in him. So let's pray, and then we'll hear Ganymed's testimony. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word of encouragement, your word of hope. Help us to have eyes to see, hearts to embrace the Christ that is presented to us, really from Genesis to Revelation, but... Uniquely here in the book of Revelation as we anticipate your return, O Lord. You are not a distant God unconcerned, but right now are strengthening your people. We have it relatively simple here. But we do pray that it is this message of hope that would strengthen your people who are in China, who are in North Korea, who are in other places around the world where to name the name of Christ brings violence, rejection, true hardship. We pray that you would strengthen them with this word of hope. That these, our brethren around the world, would persevere to the end. That they would know the glory of the gospel in a way that in the midst of suffering brings a deeper joy to their heart. And that comes only from you. We pray for ourselves that as we come and we understand this message, that we would be more faithful, that we would be more encouraged, that if any are anxious at looking at the direction of our nation, that they would find hope. And for any here who don't know you, that they would see and understand the end of all things and be truly wise and trust in you. And even now as we hear this testimony, we ask that you would strengthen Ganymede to be clear with your work of grace and strengthen our hearts to be encouraged by the gospel. And we pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.